Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Hey y'all, this is Byron O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner. I've got a real treat for you today. We're welcoming Scott Hoffman, or Baby Daddy if you're a Scissor Sisters fan, on to chat with me. Scott has been dipping his toe into the comics medium recently and pinned a few exciting new books dropping on Comixology. First up is the simply gorgeous Nostalgia. After a defining career touring as a musician, no doubt there was a reservoir of interesting things to process and reflect on. Having spent nearly 15 years in the business myself in the production and tech end of it, I was excited to share a few notes with Scott after the read-through in what I found to be an emotional, cyberpunk-fueled landscape. But enough jabbering on from me, let's get into it. Scott, thanks for carving out a little time with me to, to chat all about nostalgia and, and stuff today. Thank you for having me. Really well, appreciate it. First of all, I need to say thanks for making me look cool. Like, despite having spent 15 years plus working in the in the music industry and having worked with many a household name, I tell my wife and son that I'm interviewing somebody from the Scissor Sisters, and all of a sudden, they both start paying attention. So, thanks for making the podcast thing. That that cool. makes that makes me really happy. We used to uh, when we started in the UK, we used to. Uh, have people come up to us and say, you're, you're our Nan's favorite act, which of course means grandma in, uh, right. in, in, uh, in, in the UK. So anyone's wife or kids are, are into us is like super cool for me too. So please tell tell me I'm relevant. Tell me. You're, you are absolutely right. So my kid, we raised him, right? So he, he's the kid right now. He's doing his workout around the house, teenager, and he's, he's singing only the horses. So, so you've got, I it. love that. I love yeah. that. Excellent. We've had a really funny moment in, uh, if I can, you know, segue yeah. everything. Everything's a segue here. We sort of came up at, before, before social media, before really, uh, uh, digital was kind of a thing. They were, they were playing around with MP3s. Um, but, uh, streaming wasn't really a thing at all, but especially not the socials. And we've had a couple songs really pop off in that socials world. A couple songs. I don't know if you know about this song. I can't decide that we did. That was Never a single. It was a funny kind of like a silly song that was a B, not a B side. It was like kind of an album track on album two. I can't decide if you should live or die is the line in the chorus. And it became this like video game meme that is like all over the place. And we just see this. I'm like, I can't, I can't believe these things have lives in different ways over time. And it's just so cool. I mean, even the song you mentioned, only the horse. Yeah. Years ago. So the fact that I, you know, that your kid is listening to it is, uh, well, when he was like elementary school, man, I'm a bad parent. Um, but he was, you know, let's have a kiki in, in elementary school. So another really funny one, and one where uh, where the label, the record label, did not get that song, and we had Why? four singles. We had four singles before that. I don't know. I just think like not that they said we don't like it. It's just you know they have a, they they plan their album campaigns and they do their whole thing and they say this is the right first single. This is this and. We kind of went through singles that did okay on that record. And then finally, let's have a kiki. We decided to make like a lyric video and just dance and do a one take dance routine where I'm, you know, faking playing the, the, a drum machine and dropping my drumsticks. And like, that's the one that caught on. So like, you just never know, which is go, the beauty of it, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's jump into nostalgia because um, I think that's what we've been talking about here, going down memory lane a little bit. Um, there's a lot to unpack. Like it's a, a future noir and we're kind of exploring lots of relevant topical things here. But what struck me the most is someone who spent 
you know, that much time working with bands on the road is I kind of understand how intimate actually an expression this project is, right? It's quite unique and, and I enjoyed it immensely. So you had a good long run with the Scissor Sisters. Um, you could have written kind of an autobiography. So, you know, why choose to channel that experience into a comic book? Um, great question. I, uh, uh, I think a lot about my past uh, in sort of, sounds really uh, almost like uh, sociopathic of me, but I think, I think of things in like kind of sociological ways. I think about looking back what it really meant that I was this person who kind of worked hard, but also lucked into this thing that, that sort of happened and all the, all the, um, the perfect storm of things kind of came together for us to become uh, a, a brief sensation, especially over in the UK more than the US, but some great love over here too. Maybe, maybe almost more special in certain ways in the US because we were sort of the underground sort of cult thing to a lot of people, but it just different in different ways. And um, I kind of look at why that happened, how that happened. And I don't know if I really still have an understanding of it. I remember our first album blowing up uh, the charts when it first came out. And it was like a, a, a I mean, again, like I, sorry to, to drop uh, narcissistic facts here, but you know, we were the best selling album of that year in the UK and we had made an album in my bedroom. So it was a, a real, like uh, really mess with my head. I'm going to, that's nice surreal way, yeah a polite way it was surreal and i said you know what i love this album i'm really proud of this album but i don't really understand what made it connect with people in the way that it did i still never really got that what what it is about that momentum the snowball effect what it was this combination of things that made it work so i think there's an element of imposter syndrome that does kind of come with having an experience like that um, and it's not even a, a completely self-deprecating. It's just kind of like if you look at the world and sort of like, a, you know, from a from a, a distance, the way I kind of do sometimes from 30,000 feet, whatever they say, I kind of see this um, see this experience that was so meaningful to me in a way. But at the same time, um, I was part of this. uh this sounds awful again, but like this assembly line of similar situations that the world kind of consumes and eats up and moves on to the next one. And how do you look back at that? And how do you, how do you assess your life from that point? And I was just at a point when I was uh, starting nostalgia and I was actually um, learning how to write comic books and had written uh, wag, which we'll talk about later, the first book. And then I wrote this one and I was kind of like, what I do want to do is make books that, that, um, address the moment, the moment that I'm in and how I'm thinking about the world and that all the books that I love really do that. I think um, a, a, lot, a lot of great uh, prose or, or, or any great art, I should say, but the comics I was reading in particular were an excuse to write about what you were thinking about at the time. And the kind of okay. serialized uh, format really works that way too. Um, I've mentioned this before, but Grant Morrison wrote this interesting uh, or, or put in the back matter of the Invisibles uh, uh, collection, I think it's the, fir the first volume, uh, put a letter, his pitch, and he just said, here's what I, he, a pitch to Vertigo. Here's what I want to do. Here's kind of what I, what I see the plot being. And he wrote it all out. He's like, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I'm paraphrasing heavily, but like, I just want a book that lets me write about what I'm thinking about and what okay. I want to write about. So like the plot was sort of like, uh, 
you know, maybe slightly peripheral to, to, to really looking at the world and talking about the world. So I'm in the middle of the pandemic or maybe starting at the beginning of the pandemic, looking at politics, looking at the world, looking at, um, uh, uh, isolation in a way, and then thinking about my career at the same time and also bubblings up of, do I revisit my career? There were a lot of questions about that. Um, do sure. I go back to music? I was taking a, my first break from music since then because I was writing and producing for other people um, after the band ended, uh, directly after that until then. So it was a lot of, it's a long-winded answer, but it was just a <laughs> lot of thinking about my life, what music means to people, and the biography didn't say that to me, or the memoir okay. didn't say that to me. What I thought was more important than the details of my life was was uh the in the inner world of of that experience and that's what i wanted to talk about and, the, and sci-fi to me is a great way to um think about ideas turned physical because sometimes that technology is really just an idea that you've turned into something right uh that you can that you can see in the world yeah. Well, I was I was kind of hooked from the jump when I saw the cover for the first issue. There's a uh, cross section of like Scott Weiland meets David Bowie, even with a touch of, you know, your compatriot Jake Shears kind of morphed into a Warhol. Um, it also reminded me, honestly, of Shade the Changing Man. And I read that, you know, part of the nostalgia you're pulling from, you just mentioned, you know, the Invisibles was your fondness for that 90s era, you know, Vertigo imprint stuff, which was a defining era for me too. the Hellblazer, the extremist, trans metropolitan such amazing stuff. So talk to me about kind of that influence and how you wanted to infuse that into this. Some of those books are books I knew from my younger days, probably high school days, whenever uh, those were coming out. Some I discovered a little more into college. And a couple of those books that you mentioned, Shade in particular, um, I discovered more recently when I was doing a deeper dive into what it is that really drew me to comic books. and. Um, my editor, Greg Lockard and Phil Jimenez, who's sort of my mentor in this, uh, in this world, in this side of my life, um, said, I think you'd really love shade. I think you should really look at it. And it's not one I had really considered. And that one did end up, and I'm glad you brought it up. It really did end up being a, a really, uh, 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 an important touchstone for this book and probably for a lot of what I I'm doing because what shade does and what what other books in that in that vertigo world really did was again talking about the inner world um captions really as almost poetry i mean i think alan moore swamp thing sort of yeah but really took us there in a different way to really understand the or or, or to use comics to understand the world of the inner mind and and um to express feeling over plot structure uh you know uh thought Thought bubbles maybe at at one point in superhero comics were a way to express worry or or drive plot. These books are about someone uh, 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 thinking about life and 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 self doubt and all those and all those things that really drive me to reading in general. So um, I love for some reason Vertigo was able to do that. They were able to pull that off. I, I actually had a bit of a snarky message uh, uh, a note in one of the reviews that said 
well, you know, for all the promise of Vertigo, those books were really subversive. And that's what that was really about. And there was a subversive element to Vertigo, but that is not necessarily. And I, I, I have more subversive books. I also wrote books for Comixology, which is, you know, part of Amazon. So I wasn't, I wasn't uh, trying to, yeah. to lose my job immediately. Um, but really what I love about those books is, the, is that I think they really push to make comic books an art form over a, a driver of story. And that's okay. what draws me to that world and hopefully what I'm, what I'm doing. Well, do you have a, a personal favorite from, from that era? Um, well, it's funny. Shade became one of them, but okay. I remember I was reading Preacher back then and I just, I, I, I loved the insanity of it. I loved Transmetropolitan. Um, we Three, oddly enough, is one that I kind of was clinging to immediately, but then dabbled in Grant Morrison and he's one that I felt that I didn't really get. Um, sure. I had, I had tried Invisibles. I thought it was over my head. Um, and it wasn't until I was working with Phil Jimenez that that one became an, a favorite that I decided okay. I'm just going to, I'm just going to consume all of it. And it's made sense to me as a whole more than it did as someone picking up um, first issues and just sort of trying to understand where it was going. Because again, it really did live up to that. I think that that promise that he made in the, in the pitch, which was like, this is a, this is a, vessel for ideas and that's what i think he's so great about so yeah i mean that's a few of them i'm sure i'm forgetting some there's as well. a lot there's a lot yeah How, i mean it's such a it was such a consistent uh moment in time that really was you knew what you were getting there and and, and it was exciting yeah for sure yeah i go through those moments where i had that and i look at media now and i wonder what kids are getting exposed to that could even be comparable to it. And I, I do the same thing with music. So I think about all forms of media and I've, I get, so, I get so sad sometimes because I feel like I had these, these amazing things. And then I see people like the next generation behind me and it was fallout boy. And I'm just like, I'm not a fallout boy fan, but y you know, I'm just like, what? you can, you can feel that, that equivalent to say like, if I was a kid, what would I have found that would have scratch the same itch I, I think yep. about that all the time too it's like to me it was nine inch nails like i just yep. i that band there were different bands at different points in my life but nine inch nails was one that i just said god this is really this kind of like this loneliness and this anger whatever you feel is like a you know a teenager it really encapsulated it and then i say like corn okay corn is maybe part of that the next generation's version of that so get it but like maybe that is them i do the same thing i'm just yeah. kind of like and then those things also do age better in time. And sometimes the things you love age a little worse. And you're like, I don't really realize why I was so into that thing. Or, you know, you understand it, but it doesn't speak to you in the same way. Well, I think one of the things that most people don't understand about, you know, musicians, that life, road life, is just how isolating it can be. You know, mm -hmm. despite those perceptions of, you know, glamour and 24-7 party, you get a, really a couple of hours of, of the fix on stage in front of the crowd. And then the rest of the time, you're kind of in your head a lot, or at least that's my experience seeing it as a production guy. You know, we're always busy on that end. But, you know, your character, Chris Mancini, exists in, in kind of that mental space a lot. There's a whole lot of internal monologue going on. You know, was that designed to be a reflection of your own experience or did, is that just how you wanted to lay out the book? 
I think people have questions about the sort of autobiographical nature of this, but I really, I, I sort of mentioned, I'm sort of the fly on the wall person right. in life. And I, and I like to look at things from a, from an overhead view. And to me, I had the, I had the fortune of not being a front man of what, or a front woman watching what that is, what that does to people, but also having an important role on the side as well, just as I like it. I, I like being a little bit to the side. I, I mm -hmm. like being, you know, uh, uh, getting appreciation for, you know, uh, maybe a few accolades here and there for what I do, but I also don't need to be in the spotlight all the time. Um, so I was in that perfect position to observe and then the ability to go and meet all the, all the people that do this, to, to sometimes know them on even a more personal level, but at the, at the very least showing up to Live 8 and walking to the stage with Pink Floyd and like seeing these things happen and just kind of like, that, that's a funny story that I don't need to get too into, but just kind of, I think it was their first time playing with uh, Roger Waters you know, maybe it was decades. I don't know. And they're, and they're kind of bickering at each other. And I'm just yep. like, okay, like nothing, it, nothing's different. None of your idols have done it any different. They're still a family. They're still uh, butting heads the way families do. They're still stuck on buses together. They're still dealing with something they probably created in their youth that they haven't quite dealt with that they still hold on to. So all of this to me was fly on the wall. Again, I, I can't get to an easy answer, can I? But like the idea that that character for me was a lot of my feelings, but it was a lot of uh, a lot of my sort of empathy and trying to understand what that feeling is like for people in that position. Okay. Um, I was way less isolated than uh, the character in my book, but yeah. uh, I had moments of it, but I also saw it. And, and it's nothing I envied, really, the idea of someone who thought they had maybe sacrificed their life for being this character, and then they couldn't kind of be who they were outside of it because it burst the illusion, maybe. And yeah, I've definitely seen that. Well, the, the cyberpunk music aesthetic, you know, works for the book. I think that's a great environment to kind of ground it in. You know, I'm just starting to put a comment together uh, a little bit about music myself fantasy setting, nothing like this, but I've Love been that. looking for those like good examples in comics that tell stories about music. And I feel like it's, it's challenging to do, do it well to kind of take that auditory experience and, and morph it into a, a visual one. So I'm curious about how you went about communicating kind of that vision to your collaborators and, you know, kind of what you had in your head. Well, another thing I laugh about is, um, one of my editors who was one of the first people to read this book, Greg Lockard sort of, uh, uh, mentioned to me when I was first writing it that uh, he was actually a Vertigo editor. Um, he he said it, it was always very difficult to do music in comics because comics are a purely visual medium trying to uh, help people understand what they're hearing. Because Vertigo had a really musical sensibility, but it was all about the, it was all about the scenes. It was all mm -hmm. about like, you know, the UK, the UK scene, the psychedelic scene, whatever it was, it was never really like something you could imagine to me, the, the sound to. Um, my approach to this, though, was music as a motion and as a technology that actually is visual. So that's what I wanted to do. Um, and also, again, the cyberpunk thing specifically, 
um, which I wanted to feel a little bit dated because cyberpunk to me is another nostalgic part of my past when I was, you know, you know, doing dial up internet service and, uh, you know, uh, downloading, you know, ASCII art and thinking it was the coolest thing ever, whatever I was doing, like, like to me, writing music as a code was a sort of metaphor for what music really can be because I, the lyrics aren't even written as necessarily lyrics. They're written as commands for the, how it should work. So, so to me, I never want to have to commit to what that music sounds like. And that's to me, maybe why it works, or at least it worked for me in this book to say that this is unimaginable music. So um, I'm given a, I'm kind of given a pass. Uh, cause you can like the best you can do is try to imagine it, but you probably can't. So it really is music about emotion for me more than sound. Okay. Well, it's really interesting to, to examine me reading through it, you know, the city that, that functions like a character itself. It's kind of a cocoon of sorts, uh, for Chris, but you sort which, he, which he mentioned, he uses that word. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. For Craig. Yeah. Craig. Sorry. Sorry. Um, you spend a lot of time on the road. So, so tell me about your Gotham, you know, is the city modeled after a specific place? I know you spent time in New York as a Columbia grad. Yeah. And, and most of my, most of my adulthood in New York, where I am right now, my home, in New York. So, um, yeah, New York was a big draw for me there, but what I didn't like about the idea of putting it in New York is that New York has such a specific cultural history and such a specific musical history. Um, that I wanted this to exist in a more isolated place. And and he is my my Batman in a way. And Batman okay. has always been my favorite of the, if you want to call him a superhero, but my favorite of the comic book uh, 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 heroes. Uh, because of that sense of isolation, that sense of almost like he lives in that world that, that really is... Uh, that really is a fantasy. I love the idea that, you know, DC every once in a while... Um, Cause I don't know, I don't follow a lot of superhero books and I definitely don't follow Batman religiously, but I definitely started with a big love for Batman. Um, but I talked to Phil again, Phil Jimenez, who I name drop often um, talk to him about, about uh, how they use location in DC and the DC Bibles and the sort of like how, how those uh, uh, how the continuity works in those worlds. And they, they sort of have had Gotham in these very specific places and you kind of like, I don't know, in new jersey or something like that i don't really remember what they decided with gotham but it kind of ends up physically i never want to think about it that way and that's kind of what i love about it is it it just exists as this sort of fantasy i mean batman in a way they're they're kind of fantasy books i mean you know the characters are completely outrageous and uh unbelievable and and the world itself exists in a place that i mean there's american elements but it's it's its own its own universe yeah it's definitely outside all that yeah, it reminded yeah. me a lot of Singapore. Actually, my experience of it being on the road in Singapore. But. I love that. I've only been. I think we went through there once, um, and very briefly. And I was just scared to, you know, like spit my gum on the ground because all that stuff. Was, you know, they're apparently very. You know, so you travel through all these places, and it really is kind of scary sometimes. That you're just like you don't know how their culture is going to react to yours, and what you know what what is appropriate to do and what's not. So um, I kind of like that Singapore idea because it's it. It's a beautiful place, but also like felt felt like really alien to me. And authoritarian. Like, yeah. Well, exactly. But you don't you don't feel the authoritarian. It's very, you know, it's like yeah. you, you hear the stories. It's an interesting one. Okay. It seems like a good spot to take a quick break. Hey y'all. 
Jimmy recently scored me a signed, personalized copy of Hallow's Eve from Erica Schultz after her interview. You've probably had this problem too. I got this great book. Now, how'd I display this thing? Well, I discovered this great product from Crafty Comics that lets you showcase your treasured comics and they even have options for already slab books too. I got their flex frame, which is amazing as you can customize the backing and it even has interchangeable watercolors to coordinate with your space. I opted for neutral gray to match the blue in my room. You can hang portrait or landscape and it comes with a template to make it easy to ensure that you get it exactly where you want it. To my surprise, my wife who tolerates my comic stuff was actually impressed with the overall quality and look. Win! So if you're looking for the perfect solution to showcase your own collection, visit craftycomics.com online. That's crafty with an I. Use the discount code YETI5 and get 5% off your order. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, well, music is the expression, if you will, of the series. But the messaging, kind of as you alluded to, is all these different things is all over the map. You know, you're making a statement about the environment and how we fucked that all up. You know, there's protests in there, which feels very timely. You know, declarations about technology, privacy, advantage of the rich, especially as it pertains to healthcare. So it was impressive how all these things were balanced kind of into your world building, which didn't distract from the music focus. So did you have kind of a set amount of things you wanted to touch on or did that just kind of morph as the story moved along and it was germinating? I love talking about ideas. I love talking about what I'm thinking about in that moment. And those were really front and center in my mind. And I think it's kind of interesting that you kind of list. I mean, I, I don't know that I could do it as as well as you have, but to list off kind of what what the book touches on more strongly in certain moments. but if you think about it, the pandemic was kind of a moment with all the politics that were mixed into that moment as well, was a moment where every one of those things was kind of front and center of your mind mm-hmm. at a certain point. And yep. even the world that we live in now, those things are still kind of front and center. So um, it wasn't really hard to have to dig that up. I was just literally thinking about those. things. Um, but it's funny because I do think about the book as something a lot more personal. It's all in there. You're completely right. But if someone asked me what this book was about, I would say, you know, it's about memory and and uh, and looking back at your life, which I guess is an element of memory. So so I'm happy you bring that up. And I'm also happy that I'm able to kind of say what I wanted to say a bit underneath it all yeah. as well. Yeah, it's it was interesting to me to to address so many of those things. and. So coming from this healthcare perspective and, and it for the rich, something that really stuck with me is somebody with a serious autoimmune condition who's mm-hmm. gone through hell, you know, despite having decent coverage, um, you know, trying to, to address all that. Um, I swear, sometimes I just want to live long enough for that, that, that breakthrough to happen. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But so often we will see the future is the future, like way out there. You know, it's not close enough to feel tangible like in your lifetime. Um, but the stuff in here feels like it is, you know, there's, we're prognosticating a little bit, but not that far, you know, it makes it very personal, you know, um, like the, the, the drones, you know, that, that protect the, the, story, the character in the story. So why were you wanting to kind of ground it so close to home? Because so often we do see like the future kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. 
I've done some farther future stuff. You'll see that with WAG, which we can talk about. But to me, what's in, most interesting about science fiction, this is something I remember uh, uh, reading about years ago and has always stuck with me, is that science fiction is about now. Science fiction is about the moment we're in. Yeah. Um, as much as you want to predict the future, you're going to be wrong. You're going to be looked, it's, you're, someone's going to look in 30 years, anything you look at 30 years ago, Minority Report maybe is the closest thing we have to, to kind of hitting certain things on the head, but it's full of things that just have never really panned out and things that, um, you know, were just kind of cool because they were cool, but, you know, didn't necessarily, and I'm saying that's the best, that's the best of them, you know, look at Logan's run and you're just like, okay, like, I, you know, this is a cool Back idea. To the future. Yeah. Sure. I mean, right. It's hilarious to watch those things. I mean, that, that they've back to the future too, may have really hit, hit the nail on the head in a few ways, but, um, it was two, right? Where they end up in the, in the Biff. Yeah. Flying skateboards and all yeah, that. Exactly. Oh, well, the flags, but yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I, I just took this, I took this stance that what I'm writing about is now that's, that's the way I looked at it. I'm just like, uh, th there was some stuff with the, with Russia and the Ukraine. None of that was in the press at the time. I mean, nothing had happened. There was no invasion. There was no nothing. And I wanted this Ukrainian uh, billionaire, trillionaire and, uh, um, Russian forces coming in to sort of, uh, 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 lightly, uh, pol put political pressure on the U S and invade the rest of the world. So I don't know, it was kind of in the ether, but then I came to that moment of what do I do now? The future has now changed from what I thought it would be. And then I'm like, no, my, it doesn't matter because, because my future is going to be wrong no matter what I do. This book to me is about the moment. Um, and anything else is either lucky or a really, a really bad idea. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm curious about the process that eventually got you to presenting music, kind of both as a solo act um, and as kind of a, a vehicle of expression through the orb, because given your background, there's no guitars, there's no banjos, you know, more importantly, there's no band, you know, um, mm -hmm. so given you play lots of instruments um, and you're recognized as, as somebody in a band, that was curious, so... Uh, interesting observation. My, uh, my band started as, as, uh, me and Jake, uh, making records on logic, which I think wasn't even available for Mac at the time. It was a PC product made by this I German company. It. We thought it was the coolest thing ever. Right. You're, you know, you know, production world, right. We're just like, you know, this is the coolest thing ever. You can suddenly see music, you can see it in front of you as you're making it and you can do anything you want. You can manipulate it in really cool ways. So to me, that isn't a huge departure from the way I think about music now. And as much as we were a band, we were a band in reverse order. We brought the band on. We ended up making kind of more uh, music as a band a little bit later on, but it was always kind of a production team and always a sort of uh, producer-based project, which I know does surprise some people because um, we really love playing live and, and, and adapting it to that. But that is the way I think about music is sort of this, um, Kind of more insular, uh, uh, one or two people just, you know, face glowing in the screen and uh, uh, and and coming out with something completely otherworldly when you're when you're done with it. Um, and I saw, I guess, I saw that evolution uh, from the time I 
that was in bands in high school to wow there's this thing there's this thing okay. you can do and it just changes the way we think about things so so yes yeah, scissors sisters in a way um is a hybrid of all those things but um i also like the idea of simplifying uh the experience and the band experience is one that uh i'm probably less interested in the dynamics of a band more interested in there's the Lexi relationship, which is his sort of collaborator, but she's also sort of a roadie. And I sort of thought about relationships with people we work with on the road, um, yeah. which is a world you know well. And yeah. that friendship that becomes a very close friendship, but the hierarchically and sort of the, 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 the place you are at in your careers is so different, but you come to depend on these people. And um, sometimes it can be very transactional and you work with them for years and then you just move on. It's just, it's an, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that I, I thought was maybe more interesting for me to explore than the classic, uh, you know, you stole my sandwich from the bridge and the bus with the bandmates or something like that. It's just, uh, it's just to me, the, the business is very interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was a, a really interesting character because, I mean, obviously that resonated a lot with me because it's all sure. the time saving somebody's ass and then they're just like blow it off. And it's like, oh, this feels very, very personal. <laughs> I like that. I like that. And, and, and also it ties right into the imposter syndrome, right? Where you may have this artist that doesn't really, that wants to believe this is their thing and that they would, they, they would be here regardless. And then they look at someone else and say, I'm dependent on you. I don't like the idea of being dependent on you. I yeah. want to believe that I'm the the magical force that could do this by myself. And that's just never the case with, I mean, it's rarely the case with anyone that there's always people to back you up that, that have to be part of the thing. There's, there's never a moment where you sort of say like, um, that that's part of the nostalgia in this book, right? Or the memory is looking back and saying, would, would I have been the same person without all the people supporting me? And does that diminish? what i've done yeah yeah i mean i go through those phases now with that version of myself you know the version of me now i have you know teenager as well so you know you get sucked into to thinking about who you were right um I, everybody does that it, you know the, the experience of it is kind of a, a norm um but in the story craig is confronted with you know himself and what he was through his son nathan um, all the issues are out now, so I don't feel like I need to be too worried about spoilers, but I'd like you to kind of elaborate on that, that using that generational shift as a lens to, to kind of look at yourself, look at your life. Um, and, and cause it seemed, you know, it's, it's so hard for me to, to, to mingle and merge all these versions of myself together. Right, right. And very interesting where you talk about your son and sort of like thinking about where you were at that time. You might look at that version of yourself as a naive person, but you don't want to look at your son as a naive person because um, right. they're, 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 in a way they're as naive as you are to this day, right? We're all naive. We're all still learning. We're all still figuring our lives out. Why are we the answer to anything? So I think about this a lot with my brother who has kids and think about uh, the way we, the way we are learning as much as we're our kids are learning themselves um so there's an element of that but of course uh nathan who shows up as uh as craig's long lost son in the book is is really to me a uh an, an easy way to manifest the idea of of to some degree of imposter syndrome of seeing someone who has the same chances or i should say the same the same abilities as him the same talent as him 
but different circumstances, uh, different people around him, uh, different core reasons for doing what they're doing. Um, Craig believes he, uh, in some way wanted to share his life with the world to make the world a better place. Um, he sees a lot of anger in his son and doesn't really believe that um, using music for revolution is as effective as he may have thought it once was, um, is maybe the easiest way to put it. So it's a way, again, it's like, I'm still writing a comic here with a plot, but it definitely is a, he de Nathan definitely is a stand in for obviously himself and, and a way of looking at himself. Uh, with a kind of uh, and and kind of reevaluating uh, what youth looks like from a from an older age, which is not fun. Like I mean, not not for me anyway. It, it's kind of brutal. <laughs> I find it interesting because as an uncle, it's so thrilling to me to watch these kids. Kind of like I can be the uncle. I can be the guy that says, yep. "Yeah, so here's this cool thing that you probably shouldn't be reading," and like you know, here's this thing, and I do that and being a parent is completely different and I will, you know, I will, I do not understand. I won't say never, but I, I, I don't imagine I will, but I definitely don't understand that dynamic right now. And a lot of seeing yourself in, in that person I know is, uh, is, uh, is a heavy idea. It's uncomfortable is what it is. Yeah. yeah interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard very similar things before is to say like, um, even more emotionally put actually from a particular friend of mine who says, you know, um, she looks at her daughter and she sees those things in herself that she just wishes she had changed and wishes that she hadn't passed on. But at the same time, you've got to love your kid for what they are. And you almost want to teach them to accept those things that you don't still don't accept about yourself. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I guess it's a minefield. It, Absolutely, it's a mind fuck, but yeah. My, yeah. I wanted to say that I, I you know, I'm. I'm it's being, all good. Uh, you, you can swear; it's fine. I'm being family um, friendly, yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was reading through, I kept wondering what what this would look like without any word bubbles at all, because the visuals and the story are kind of so engaging on their own. So I wanted to give a bit of oxygen to the the collaborators that you're working with, because the work is stellar. You know, particularly Lee uh, Loveridge's color work. You know, kind of as a former lighting designer, I swear that Lee must have studied, you know, staging park hand colors, you know, to use them in the book. Because, like, I definitely saw some, like, Roscoe 181 Congo Blue in there, right? Um, amazing, amazing. He's uh, he, he has a music background. Um, I know he's friends with a lot of musicians. I forget exactly. He's really into punk scene, actually. And I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what his uh, direct connection to music was. But he added so much to that. He... Um, I've, I've never seen uh, someone work like that before. I'm new to comics and I'm new to watching the process, but um, those pages came back exactly as they should have come back with, you know, I sent them some, some references, some of the lighting that I love, some of the um, really dramatic okay. stage lighting. Um, but aside from that, I think he just instinctually understands that. And to me, um, it does work so well with the sort of cyberpunk aesthetic and the and the idea you know how the city felt next to those performances as well um and you know i i am i i i don't give enough uh oxygen as well as you said to the um to the collaborators collaborators and i really should and um daniel who did the uh 
Daniel Jajay, who did the, uh, the the art, is just really ran with it and is fantastic. And uh, I know I pushed him out of his comfort zone a little bit with kind of really wanting magic. I wanted ma- I wanted the the technology to feel like magic, and he just just did it was perfect. He was perfect. oh, yeah, nailed it! Like it was yeah. gorgeous. Well, I really love the uh, the article segments kind of at the beginning of the book, which sets the tone for the issue. Um, felt very Rolling Stone, especially very 90s Rolling Stone. Um, so they're kind of these little independent journeys in and of themselves. Um, after my read through, I don't think they had to be included necessarily for the narrative to work. You know, they, I, I, I love that they're in there, um, but sure. it would have been fine without them. So kind of where did those come from? Why did you want to add those in there? Um, what I wanted to do is I wanted to set a little bit of the world. Again, I think you're right. I don't think they were, um, they were make or break, but as I get meta with all of this, there is a nostalgia to the way this book is put together. There's a nostalgia to the idea of, of building your world through press clippings. Press clippings are a huge part of being, uh, a musician, being someone in a band for me. Um, even if they are digital now. And um, we kind of had a little fun with trying to decide whether he would have printed those out at some point, to put them up on his wall or whether they would have just stayed on a disc, some magical hologram disc somewhere, whatever they're using at the time. But um, uh, those to me were actually there to build a really important part of this uh, experience. Um, not to build the beginning, but to ramp up the idea of disappointment by the end. Um, And the journey of the world loving what you do almost um, uh, unconditionally in the beginning because you're new, you're a fresh face, and the allure uh, fading away by the later stages of a career as almost uh again sociological look at the way press works and the way that the world likes to build something up and take it down and um tied into the uh disappointment at the end i think this is a book about disappointment and i think it is a positive book it has a positive message about where you can be with your life but that that disappointment is going to be an inevitable, inevitable part of that journey because nothing's going to be like the first high of being a being a musician or a band that conquers mm-hmm. the world. It's right. it's just inevitable. It's part of it, part of it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You know. Yeah, I mean the 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 you know the final article is what were we even duped? Which uh, yep. you know like like the idea that uh you know again spo- slightly spoilery but you know this person sort of saying is like like not only is this not aging well but maybe we were wrong all along um which to me mirrors exactly the way what what we think about ourselves the way we think about ourselves as artists sometimes is to say maybe maybe i didn't really have it and maybe i fooled everyone again that's like the nature of imposter syndrome so to have that sort of articulated by the rest of the world i think to me even drives home his state of doubt and isolation uh, even more to me well i come from a background um also 
being a trained anthropologist, so I'm constantly looking for like symbolism in everybody's work. Um, I, I probably like look too much. Um, but the Nautilus plays a, a really important role to to Craig in the story. There's a an interesting it's an interesting choice, you know, as a spiral, you know, taking an inward journey and ultimately finding a, a point of precision. So along his journey, it doesn't actually I mean it's not precise, like in my head, you know, not exactly precise. So, but the shell is a uh, functions as his call to adventure, and even as an endpoint of, of, and of sorts. I, and I would go back to the precision because I think you know to literally think about the Nautilus is the spiral that that stops in a in a perfect place. But right. I think as a symbol, it's never ending, right? So it's that search inward that is never going to take you anywhere. And I, you know, I'm not just pulling that out of my ass here. I think that was really something that you you hit on that's correct. But I think the the, the reading of that is that. Um, he, he's, he's, uh, he's doomed to continue looking inward. That's where okay. this character is. And I don't know that there is a, a center of that, you know, okay. the sun, yeah. the sun is his lineage. He's going to look for, you know, that's going to be another link to look further and there's going to be no end beyond that either. Yeah. And I mean, this one's going off a, a little bit off track, but, you know, talking about symbolism, you have a, a logo at the back of every issue for people who haven't seen it. It's like this diamond shape with a black head um or a black and white head that that has a cloud behind them looks like a red tear so maybe it's not even super germane to this i have no idea but i was just curious about it so what was that about right so that actually pops up in the book near the beginning when uh when his manager is calling and they talk about her new logo uh, the new logo for the company, which is we we printed it without the name on the back so that was kind of a little a little uh uh, probably throws you off a little bit but um, that's, you know, dead sky and it becomes, you know, it's, it's his, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's his manager's management company that since has turned into just dead sky, no management, no, whatever we've gone fully court, you know, we've gone into sports, we've gone into entertainment. It's just okay. a, a, a kind of funny inside joke to me and what is happening to, uh, to the music industry right now. But yeah. also specifically that logo tying into the dead sky um, uh, notes about or, or hints about uh, the sky not actually being dead necessarily because uh, because we're killing it. But um, a few steps away from that, uh, the, the light pollution that he mentioned at the beginning where we're seeing less and less stars in the sky. So it's an allusion to that. Um, okay. The little the little tear was. Uh, and logo was courtesy of Ryan Hughes, who I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he did all uh-huh. the design work in the book. And um, you know his if you if you go to if you go to his website, you'll definitely know his work. He did a lot of the classic Vertigo covers. Okay, and, uh, okay. Uh, is now a, a a prose writer as well. Did a couple of amazing novels that are out right now. Sci-fi world. I think you'd actually love his work. Okay, um, but uh, but. He added. He really added an element to this book as well, and I really should mention that. That you know, he he did these covers. He he's a big fan of music. He was really excited to tie this into his love of music because he hasn't really designed on the music side. He's mostly stayed in the comics world. Um, and there was definitely some headbutting in saying like, "I don't want this to look like albums. I've looked at albums my whole life. Like you know, I want this to look like the future." And he's like, "No, no, no. Let's make it. Let's let's make it vinyl. Let's make it look like this." And of course, he brought the nostalgia right in by doing that, and yeah. an anachronism along with that as well. And sorry, that's a little segue there, but 
but yeah, he was, he was responsible for that. Okay. Yeah. I love that. And I think for, especially it's especially meaningful to me because I think a lot of people don't know, and you live through this era, you know, right around 2000 where everything got corporatized. I mean, like music was a lot of fun pre 2000 and then everything with clear channel who I I'm going to call the ultimate evil. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just changed the landscape completely. Well, you did say it was a lot of fun. You didn't say it was a lot of fun for us. I mean, yeah. it was a lot of fun for us. I'm sure music is a lot of fun for a lot of people right now. For us, music right now doesn't have fun. And again, yeah. this is generational, right? Um, I think kids today are very excited that music is so corporate. I think they're excited that um, they can one day be a YouTube musician that can um, have a have a Coca-Cola ad on, you know, flashing before their uh, before their video and make money off of it. I don't know that those things are taboo anymore. Yeah. If not, again, on the other side, I think they're actually exciting for kids right now. I am waiting for a backlash because I do think that's inevitable. And I'm surprised it has taken this long for, for a sort of grunge style corporate backlash to what's going on. But of course, grunge was also a hugely. Yes, absolutely. That can be your next book. Just focus on that. I'd love that. I'd read that all day long. What do you want? You want grunge or you want corporate, uh, corporate takeover, corporate takeover. Well, you may, you may be, you may be in love. Um, another thing in the future is really, uh, not in, not in the sci-fi future, but in my future, um, that I'm working on with a really exciting artist too, that's hopefully, um, see the light of the day is, I guess you never know. Uh, you you never, never know about anything. You just never know. But, um, something that really is a lot of what I've been thinking about with, uh, uh, with monoculture, the idea of what I call cultural entropy, with the idea of everything blending into one, yeah. one mass, one corporate mass. Yeah, I, I, I will never get sick of talking about about that stuff. Well, As an anthropologist, I'm sure you, you exactly, hundred percent. Well, all this music focus, you got to tell me about your your favorite show of all time, not the one you personally played, but the one that just blew your oh mind. favorite live show. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a little repetitive here. Um, it's boring, but I saw the last show of the Downward Spiral tour by Nine Inch Nails. I think it was in like 1996. Wow. No, no. Maybe it was a little later, like seven or eight. Um, my brother was in college in New Orleans and got us tickets when I went to visit him. And I, you know, I was a fan, but I just would never have thought that, you know, I, I just, you know. There wasn't there wasn't internet then. I didn't know they were even playing in town, and he took me that show, and um, I I had just never seen anything like it. I, I the visuals, the video, the 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 aggression, the whole thing. It was just like it really took out inside yeah. of myself. Incredible. Nice. What was yeah, yours? So odd. Um, when I tell people this, they're like, "What? That that makes <laughs> okay, really?" Um, complete happenstance. I just happened to be working uh, a show as a local. I don't, have you ever heard of Ashley McIsaac or know who he is? No. So he's a, a Canadian violin, but he doesn't play it like a violin. He plays so aggressive. And it absolutely blew my mind. The guy walked out in urban camo and, a, and an IRA hat and just ripped into this violin. I've never seen anybody play that instrument that fast. He went through three bows in the set. Because he 
he would hit just so like hard. Pop, like, fl- yeah, like the strings just flying off or the hair. Yeah. So, yeah. And you could see with the light coming down, the sawdust coming off of the violin because he was just hitting it so hard on the edges. And it was just, I love blew that. my mind. It was crazy. I love that. Ashley McIsaac. Yeah. Check him out. I, I am going to, and I would say as a, as a person in production, it's a, it's a, it's a high bar for you probably because you're just seeing things all the time, right? You get disillusioned to it right. as well, seeing and all kinds of shows. That was what was amazing about it. It's, it felt so intimate. Like what he was doing was almost like a, an expression just for me. And I'm sure everybody in the crowd, because it was a small crowd. It was like a 600 seat venue. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah. everybody so the best would have shows taken, are like that. Exactly. Everybody would have taken away that very personal experience from that night. Like, oh, he was playing for me. And yeah. he was clearly playing for himself, you know, like yeah. he was just maybe so, a bit for you, maybe, a bit for you. Eh, maybe, but like, it was just, it was amazing. You know, he, he channeled and tapped into something that I just haven't experienced many times. I love that. I think, I think it's a hard thing to, find. it was probably always a hard thing to find, but I think it's an especially tough thing to find in, in, uh, even my band is guilty of this and in going on bigger tours, having, you know, the cues are different. You have to kind of have everything. A little yep. more lined out. There's no less messing with the set list and messing with arrangements and stuff like stuff like that. So someone who is really able to express themselves is a rarity. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have so much that's staged when you do these big productions. That, that's, it's, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Staged. Well, before I let you go, we need to hear about Wag. This was announced at Comic Con, I believe, and is it like was. a neurodivergent, futuristic thing, loner, post-apocalyptic world. Which okay, feels a little bit familiar. Yeah, so um, WAG is maybe uh, a funny mirror image of of uh, nostalgia. Uh, they're the first two things I wrote, um, and I love sci-fi. So yeah, I'm sticking. I'm sticking with the sci-fi uh, sci-fi theme for a minute. And um, if if nostalgia was a look at cyberpunk, this is a look at uh, uh, post-apocalyptic. Uh, dystopian uh mad max type world um but as with nostalgia i wanted to explore a take that was uh um that explored my own fears uh and uh and ideas about what that world could be i think we're always writing in tropes in some way so so what can i bring to this and to me um uh, another big fear in the pandemic was what happens. And I think this is something you could probably relate to what happens when, when the pills run out, what happens when access to, to, uh, health care, um, especially, uh, mental in, in this particular instance is gone. Um, and, and what do we do and how do we break down from that? But of course, um, I wouldn't do that without blending in a million other things, including, um, uh, you know, neurological implants and uh, conspiracy theories and um, how that all might blend into someone who is having uh, trouble uh, distinguishing uh, reality from from their own anxieties and fantasies. That sounds really cool. Down with that. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. It's a very different book. Yeah, it's um, uh, I work with Juan Bobillo on this book. Uh, he's a little bit more of a cartoony take i don't know if you know his work maybe from yeah. she hulk and uh yeah um some other great stuff and 
it's, it's a little bit more of an intimate book. It was less of a team. It was me and him. He did the coloring and the art. And, um, uh, it to me is, is, was the ability to kind of be a little less serious, a little less, um, uh, regimented and just do something that's sort of this explosive, uh, sort of, uh, uh, I say like, like, uh, journey adventure, journey adventure. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, Jermaine here. So talking about mental health, I always like to sort of wrap stuff up now. The current climate in the comics medium, burning people out. And I always want to take a moment to kind of address mental health. Um, and I think the best way to sure. do that is to start by like normalizing the discussion of it. Um, so kind of as a musician, that balance of giving to a fan base, to a fan and using their energy as fuel. Um, it's challenging. You know, it is a balance. It's a little different as a comics writer as you can kind of maintain more of the arm's length distance, but it, it's it's still a hard medium um, that we're just kind of coming to grips with the toll that it is taking on people. So kind of how do you maintain that work-life balance as a creator? Make sure to... Well, and I will add your- to that. Um, I think we're more susceptible as creatives in general um, to, yeah. to the... To the um, the self-doubt, the uh, the the anxiety that comes with with being a a, a thinking, a, you know, more more aware person possibly. Um, um, but also, I would say, as much as there is that, um, there is a bit of less less of the isolation in music. I was always warned that being a writer, which I always did want to be, was one of the most isolating things you can do, and be beware of that. Um, I don't mind the isolation as much, but it is something to keep in mind that the self-doubt is something that I think goes across all, all forms of expression, um, whether you're getting feedback from fans or not. The self-doubt is, is going to be a constant. Um, to me, you know, I, in very general terms, I'm not talking the, the medical or psychological version of this, but I do like to think about mindfulness in a really gen- general way awareness of these feelings awareness that i'm going to experience doubt i'm going to be frustrated i'm going to feel lost um it's still not always easy to deal with but it um that awareness also comes with the reminder that there is uh there is a a, a place on the other side that you do come out on so um, I think it's a good thing to address. I don't know if I'm being helpful here, but I, I do, I do, I do know that for me, um, uh, a- awareness of the um, almost inevitability of having those doubts is important. Yeah, I mean, I think just again talking about it, normalizing it, people who are listening, understanding that it, hey, everybody goes through this, you know, and that's a start. Absolutely. So- that diminishes yeah, and, and, and you know, I, and, and, and the new book, which I'm not like getting back to a selling point here, but I did want to mention that, you know, I mentioned it's sort of like, you know, the, the sort of common current way to talk about it is to say neurodivergent. I mean, uh, you know, to me, this is about uh, mental illness in any way you want to think about it. Um, something that I do not claim I suffer the worst of or don't suffer at all it's just you know i'm in my own zone with it and my own anxieties and and ruminating thoughts and whatever those things are 
Um, but I do want to say that, that, uh, you know, there's just, there are millions of ways to look at this and millions of different experiences to be had. Um, so any, any version of that is, is only my best, uh, version of, of expressing how I have seen the world in certain ways. And there is no right or wrong way to kind of experience the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the message, right? Like everybody goes to it and there's no right or wrong here. Right. The, 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 you don't know how I feel. Well, yeah, you're exactly right. I, I don't know how you feel, but I do know how it feels to be me. And sometimes that's not easy either. Yeah. So, um, you know, we all, we all deal with, with certain things. And I, what I love about comics, what I felt, uh, uh, I wouldn't say music isn't a communal experience, but I would say I feel a lot more community in comics because only because of the intimacy of comics not that one's nicer or meaner okay. i feel an intimacy in comics because you find people that are thoughtful they're readers um and the uh the access to to the creators and the sort of world of um engagement to me is a lot more intimate and i and i like that and i think it's a it's a pretty welcoming community i hope i hope i continue to see that yeah it's I, been super welcoming to, to me um, yeah well, um, God, thanks for yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I mean, it, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I I loved it absolutely. Please, uh, happy to talk anytime. So uh, yeah. maybe for the new book, I will. I'll reach back out. Well, folks, uh, Nostalgia is an incredible book. Um, honestly, kind of wasn't prepared for how good it is. No offense, Scott, um, but I had my expectations and they were just blown away. You can download it on Comixology now, um, all five inches. I would venture to guess there's probably something down the line in terms of a, a paper version. Do we know anything about that? Or? Yeah, the, the physical version will be next year. There'll be more details on that to come. Um, and my little, my little pitch here, you can read it for free with Comixology Unlimited, Kindle Unlimited, or even amazon prime if you have amazon prime you can actually download it for free so um add it to your little it'll say you know on the app for the website download for free then get the comiXology app or the kindle app and you can read it so it's it's actually pretty easy it's yeah. uh it's free for most people i'd probably say that go on amazon because you probably have one of those things yeah i mean you can't be free i don't know free an awesome comic for free I mean, okay, right there. We should have led you with can't that. Beat it. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. Free, free, yeah. it's free, free-ish. We're going to call it free-ish. <laughs> We're corporate free. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is Byron O'Neill, and on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg 
but their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one. All you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the Department of Meta Human Affairs or DMA and check it out right now. 